Hello and welcome to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm your host and my name is Dr. Leslie Deacon. And I'm your other host and I'm Dr. Sarah Lombe. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Lombe and today we've got a slightly different episode um, because we have joining us today Dr. Leslie Deacon as normal but this time Leslie is here as a guest rather than a host um, because she is going to be talking to us about her paper and we are also joined by Dr. Donna Peacock who's our acting head of CAS here um, and is here as a guest host um, to help me have a conversation with Leslie about her work. So welcome both of you to the portal. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, really enjoyed reading your paper, Leslie. And um, I wondered if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about the research and, and the background to that. Um, yeah, so it was. It actually took place a few years ago now. And um, it, what it was was the, a local charity who provide respite um, for uh, respite breaks for children with disabilities and lifelong uh, life limiting conditions, they had got some um, big lottery funding to, and they want what they were wanting to do is <clears throat> they were recognising that the um, parent carers who were bringing the children to the service um, were have obviously their own needs as as carers. So what they were wanting to do was start a service whereby they gave some psychosocial support to these parents while the children were there. Because the respite doesn't necessarily mean they were there overnight. It could be that they were just there for the afternoon just to have a break, and to give them like a chance to then do something for themselves. So they were doing um, offering things like counselling, like massage, the use of the sensory room. Um, and some you know, like group chats as well to get the parents together. So what they needed done was they needed an evaluation of that to then feed back to the, the lottery to show how they'd used the funding. Um, so when I got asked if I would be involved with that, I thought it would be a really good opportunity to involve some um, master's social work students to actually do the data collection, which mm-hmm. was Philip Nicholson and um, Kim Allen, who, who are named on the paper with me. So they were the ones that actually went out and gathered the the data on the service so that's how it came about really okay um so there are a few kind of terms that you use in the paper and that i think will come up quite a lot in today's discussion as well so i wondered if we could just start off by um explaining and going through what those are one of them you've already mentioned so you talked about parent carers um which might be a new kind of concept or idea for for some people it seems self-explanatory but i think it's maybe a bit more complex than that one yeah it's a it's a bit of a I think you know I've mentioned in other podcasts actually when we talked to Donna about her research about contested terms and language and things like that but the the idea of the parent carer it's it's quite it's quite a difficult thing to identify because actually when you talk to parents of children um with disabilities they they don't really many of them don't really like that term they don't like having the word carer placed in that because for them it's it's their child it's you know they're the the mother or the father of this child so they don't necessarily like the idea of of carer you know it's it's similar to things we've we've talked about in other podcasts which is this idea of how do you get access to support though and so the the reason that it's used is because that there's a certain point in particular where you're parenting a a child with disabilities where there's a change between what would be usually expected of a parent to then becomes in addition to that. So there's kind of a shift at that point that what goes into that kind of usual understanding of a child's development, that child does not follow that path and therefore the, the role of the parent slightly changes. So they maybe they don't then the child doesn't start doing things on their own. So the parent continues with that after a certain point. Mm-hmm. So that's why the, the term parent care is, is used. Um, and it's because of the fact there's, there's confusion around where they sit in terms of legislation as well. So um, there is obviously legislation around carers for adults, so adult carers of adults. But actually, in, when it comes to a child with disability, the parent comes through the Children Act. So their caring comes through the child. Mm-hmm. And then when the child's 18, it all shifts. So they become a, an adult carer then. Right. So it's like a bit of a 
sort of confusing state, which is one of these examples of where do they fit in the system and how do they get access to things. So why did the parents <coughs> not like the term? Because you're just a parent. You're just mum, you're just dad. And, and then you kind of think about, you know, when you think about the term as of carer, it suggests something separate. It's that something that it's like a professional type role mm. or something in addition that isn't really about the fact that, no, I'm just doing this because I'm the mum. Yeah, so or like I'm the ca- dad. caring is being part of being a parent. Yeah. So is it something about not feeling that that yeah. needs to be... It doesn't need something. to be said. It's yeah. just, you I'm know, of course parent, I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah, because no child is the same. Mm-hmm. So even if the child doesn't have a disability, they're not, they're, they all need a certain amount of caring. It's just that, you know, for a child with disability, that caring may, may be more significant to the parent. But the parent's view is, in the majority of cases... So, so what? So the parents just see themselves as parents, yeah, but of the, course. the label of care yeah. attracts a certain level of resource and support. Absolutely. So it's that classic thing of, you know, as we discussed with other things around vulnerability and things like that, it's about accessing a service or getting some support. But in actual fact, for the person that gets the label, they don't necessarily like it. So how did you actually do the research then? How did the project take place? So what what we actually did, so what they were doing is, so they were setting up this service where they wanted to provide support for these these parents. And so what they wanted to do is they needed to know, basically, did the parents know about the service to begin with? I mean, that's a real problem about how do you get information out there where there's a, a service that's filling a gap. You know, how did they get that information out? So they wanted to know what did the parents know at the start and what were they doing to help themselves at the beginning? So what kind of care, self-care did they already do? You know, was that from another service or was it about family and friends? You know, where were they getting support to continue with doing the parenting? Um, so there was an entry survey that was completed with the with the parents. So just really... quite a basic survey about how they'd heard about the service um, and then what they were intending to use and why. So were they going to use the counselling? Were they going to use the coffee morning group? Were they going to use the massage or the sensory room? And then what we did was actually got um, one of the students, which was Philip, then went back in to do some qualitative interviews with the parents who agreed to then ask them at the end of it, um, you know, what have they enjoyed about it? What what has their experience been? How they felt about it? And then we did an exit survey to ask them again, you know, at the end of this process, has this made any difference to you? Because really, the charity were doing it to basically support these people and to give them some respite themselves, not just the respite of taking the responsibility for the child, but actually doing some extra things with them to help them. What it then became about was really looking at, is that actually what we should be doing? Because why are the parents having such a, a difficult time? Because actually they were. They, they were struggling um, physically and emotionally because with many of them they were trying to work. They were had siblings, so they had other children to look after. And these extra parts of, of the parenting that they needed to do for their children they were finding challenging at times. It didn't change how they felt about the child, but it changed how they managed and how they coped. So in actual fact, they were really, really struggling at times. And what it then we started looking at when I was actually looking at the data, I mean, I fed back to the service, you know, what the outcomes were, that the parents had enjoyed the massage, the fact that it fit in with their schedule. That was a really important part, that it fit in with the fact that actually I'm not going to go and book myself somewhere else to have a massage. I can have it here, my child's looked after. Great, I'll just quickly have a massage. And what they didn't do was they didn't access any group support, even though they all talked about wanting to do that. So there was something going on as to why. Like, why did they not then access that type of support when actually they were all talking about how sharing the load is a really important part of of what they needed um, so we started looking at, well, why was that the case? And that's where we started looking at this neoliberalism. So it sounds really as though you started off with the idea of doing something like a service evaluation yeah. and lots of other information. You started, started raising other questions and other issues. Yeah, I mean, basically it was because that, I mean, that's the service evaluation did just, we did do that. We did the report. We fed back to the service about the, the you know, feeding back. This is what the parents found useful they didn't find the group work useful because they couldn't coordinate 
so they couldn't coordinate with each other to get there all at the same time that that the the routine aspect of what they were managing on a day-to-day basis meant they they can't they don't have yeah it's too challenging they don't have a flexible schedule so they couldn't do that so actually what they found really helpful was something that they were already bringing their child there and then it meant that at that point they could choose what to do because that was time that was taken Mm -hmm. you know out a break for them and if there was counselling there if there was massage available there they could do it because there was no way they were going to easily able to arrange those things separately so that's what we fed back yeah. so where did the links to the idea about neoliberal ideology come <laughs> in terms of the analysis that you were doing well it was it was through discussions with um with other colleagues around this because then obviously I discussed this um with the research lead at the time and I was discussing well I fed this back but now I want to do something with the data that I have what which was obviously agreed with the charity that I would then make sense make you know be able to disseminate something from it and so I started looking at it and then it was just through those kind of discussions as to okay but you know why so why were the parents not accessing that group support because in the entrance surveys they all said that's they really liked the idea of being able to sit and have a chat with other other parents in similar positions and have a coffee and it didn't happen so it started from that point of so why did it not happen so then we started looking into um so why were they then not able to arrange that and that's when we started to think about well let's look at the structures around this and let's think about how they access the services and what the what the system is so what we found is no choice was a big issue for these parent carers they didn't have any choice around um what they could access so they were told you can access you can have respite and you can have it there and you can have it that time so they were getting told so they were being t- the idea in the in the in legislation is that they are entitled to these breaks but how that's then put into practice depends on each local authority and each local authority then has different service level agreements with different organisations so what was happening is a local authority was then changing the service organisation and the parents had no choice in that matter they were then told you have to go to this place or you have to go there so actually what became very very evident is no choice and also the fact that actually it felt like there was lots of barriers being placed for these parents so that actually the first thing they did, the very first thing they thought about when they needed help was not to come to the state for help, which in a welfare state you would think that they would do that. They don't. They go to their mums. Is that not what happens in most... I mean, you're, you're doing a project in the northeast Absolutely. of England and it's that kind of cultural... Yeah, if you don't, if you need help, go and ask your mum, kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely, and that in itself, on its own, is not necessarily. Is it the same or different than what you would see in other absolutely? Families? You go to that, but then what was what was really specific about these parent carers is they felt that very they were very responsibilised into thinking this is my duty and it's my responsibility. So it's not just I'm going to go and ask my mum. And, and she'll help me out. It was very much like, Mum, I'm, this is my job and I've got to do this and I'm not managing it. And that's how it was then shared with Mum. Was that around a lack of understanding of what kind of support might be available to them or was it because they saw that lack of choice that they had and it wasn't necessarily a good fit when they were offered additional it would. Support? It was both. So it's both because it's about the fact that the, they don't know what's there. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a big issue with that, and I mean during this whole process, it was quite an interesting process for me because I it happened over a period of years, this like from the point of data collection to then getting the article published, and during that period of time, without me realising what was going on, I then got identified as a parent carer in my own right, and I have tried to navigate the system as a person who used to work in the system, and I and I failed at it, I have utterly failed at it. I have no idea who to go to. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, oh, I'll go to the social services and, and they don't know what I'm entitled to. So they know one bit. And then a year after being supported, somebody says, actually, um, uh, oh, have you accessed this service? I was like, I've never heard that service before. Well, how would, what do they do? So what? It's it's both elements to that. There's this, the problem that we've got is that it's sort of perceived that social services is where you go. 
but actually you can't necessarily access social services because actually they will only support um, families where it's over a certain threshold. So the child has to already have um, had a DLA assessment, so the Disability Living Allowance Assessment, and they'll already have had to have been identified as either needing medium or high care component. And only then will then you get a social worker to begin with. So knowing, and I, I didn't know I was supposed to go for DLA. Nobody said anything. <laughs> you know, so there's, there was things that we were finding in this research that they didn't know that they could yeah. access it. It's it's so complicated, isn't it? And the yeah. person who could have said you need to do this would have been a social worker, but it's a bit cyclical because you can't speak to the social worker until you've done it. Yeah. Even though they're the ones <laughs> who know that you need to do yeah. it. But then, and and then really you thought, I know, yeah. You as in your, yeah. You because know, you were a children's social yeah. worker before you moved into academia. And the fact that you yourself still found that system so difficult to navigate. Yeah, it, um, it, it is because really they're all gaps. how complicated it is. It is. It's it's because of the the issue for me is about. I remember it, like years ago seeing. Um, I think it was Ma- Michael Lavalette talk, and he was about this sort of. He's a, like a radical social work person, and he was talking about what he referred to. I think it was him, and I hope I'm not misquoting. Is projectivization so basically privatization by the back door, and that what happened was there's loads and loads of li- little different um, gaps have been filled by either sort of voluntary services or small, medium-sized enterprises and and social enterprises, and they've all been filled up. Well, not all of them. Some of them have. But then knowing that service, it's like, where do you go for that information? How do you know that that's the process that you need to go through? Mm -hmm. And that's what the parents were just, they didn't know. That they were that this was something that they were entitled to. That was like what we found. Even though this organisation had got the funding and they'd set up and they tried to advertise, they needed to know whether the parents knew about it. And it was word of mouth. Mm-hmm. That was the the main issue was the fact that people started talking, and then you kind of have your own social networks and people start putting things in there and saying, actually, that's why don't you try such and such. Which kind of makes me feel really sad yeah. because it's like potentially the people who are the most isolated yeah. and least supported are the least likely to know about the services. Absolutely, because they? yeah. they're not. Nobody's going almost to somebody's door and saying, "Right, if you've got this situation, this is what you're entitled to. If you've got this, you're entitled to this." Nobody's doing that, and and I think the whole system, the navigation of that system. I mean, cl- completing an application for di- disability living allowance is is absolutely. It's confusing, and and I and the questioning of it. I sat and thought, if I wasn't a social worker, I wouldn't have known how to answer this question, and I probably therefore would not have got the the support mm-hmm. because I would have just thought, oh no, that doesn't apply. But then actually think it's not just about a physical thing; it's emotional support and it's support around instruction and things like that that you don't think about, but that mm-hmm. actually other children they don't necessarily need that. So. I can't remember what the first part of your question was, I've just realised. Neither can I. No, it's gone. It's, it's gone. <laughs> can I just take you back to something you mentioned a, a, yeah. a few questions ago? <laughs> just quite an interesting concept, really. You, you mentioned, in, and it's quite strongly in the paper, this idea of responsabilisation. Yeah. And when you talk about a concept like responsabilisation, that sounds like an intentional strategy. And what I'm wondering is, linking that with this idea of neoliberal mm-hmm. ideology, did you think that was intentional? And if so, mm-hmm. for what purpose? So like the responsabilisation of parent carers. Yes. Um, I, it's funny because actually through the whole process, I had to go through, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, do I agree with that? Do I think that is what's been going on here? And it was, it felt hard not to think that when I actually was looking at what these parents were talking about and looking, because then aside from that, what I was then trying to do was look at what what is this system, mm-hmm. what's going on. And what I was then looking at as well was going back to, you know, my own experiences of, of looking at parents in child protection as well. And I was thinking about what is the state expecting? And the the way that it felt, it feels like it's set up is to say that actually... Part of me is questioning, is it so difficult to find these services? Because if you find them, then that means you're accessing money 
that could be spent elsewhere by the state. So I I did start to question that, that then if if they don't know about something, they think they don't need to fill it, they don't need to fill that gap. So, you're, I mean, you know, when we've talked about the research around, you know, volunteers and things like that. Financial savings. It's financial savings, isn't it? So it's hard to, it's hard not to think that when actually you go through um, austerity and austerity is presented to us as it's about economics, that's all it is. But when you start questioning that, you start, you can start to think, well, actually, yes, but let's look at where the economic savings were made. And you look at them and they're in the public services, So I was a practitioner during the economic crisis and I remember we were brought into a meeting and we were told literally overnight services went out of commission and couldn't support it. So I was working with a family where the mum had just been diagnosed as having a learning disability. So I wanted to refer her to support, specialised support around parenting for, for parents with learning disabilities and the service went so the answer was, just sort something out yourself with her. And I'm like, well, I'm not an expert. I don't know how to do that. So it starts, it does feel that when you look at where the savings have been made, is this about saying, you've got to sort yourself out, we're not going to help you? And it does feel a bit like that, because then actually when you add on to that, all right, there is some support there, but it's so hidden from people that actually if it's not being used it then won't be funded. So then that's the saving, isn't it? So I did start to feel, I did st- I'm not saying that that is exactly what's going on and I can categorically prove it, but I did start to question it. And it was the same with actually the self-help, I, the idea of self-help. I mean, we're presented to the, this as something that is really good for us. We should all be caring more about our mental health and well-being, and I'm not disagreeing with that. But but when you actually start to look at it and you think, well, actually, what is that about? Because these peop- these parent carers, when they were accessing that, they were struggling. Mm. You know, and it's at the point of saying, oh, well, you're struggling, which means you're not doing it right, so that's when you need this. And it's only enough to send them back into what they can do. Well, it's just, I mean, that idea of self-care, has, it's a capitalist idea of yeah. self-care that we take forward, isn't it? It's become yeah. very marketised. I mean, even with what you were saying, that they could access, for example, a massage. That's yeah. that kind of idea. Yeah. Of oh, if you're stressed and things aren't yeah. going right, you can have a lovely you can massage. Pay for a massage and yeah. everything will be okay. But actually, that's not the kind of practical help that's really going to no. make a difference. That might help them, you know, in the short term feel yeah. more relaxed but actually, if, if there are challenges and struggles that are happening, a massage isn't going to be... No, and it comes later in the in the process. It's not mm-hmm. at the start of, you you know, when you find out. I mean, they're, they're very... These parent carers are very much within... Many of them were stuck within the sort of medical. And, you know, we talk about the, the, the deficit approach, and it is because it's all about the negatives. It's all about, you know, there's something wrong, there's something medically wrong, there might be disorders, there's dysfunctions, and all of this language is about you know you were expecting this child and now this child is different and this is what's going on Mm -hmm. and they have to grapple with that and they're not supported around that Mm -hmm. and it's about like where does that support come and it doesn't come in a preventative way at the start of a process Mm -hmm. it comes later when someone's struggling and it's then just here's what's enough because obviously it was only a certain number that they were entitled to they couldn't you know it's not just you get one all the time yeah. it's a set amount you can access it for a short period of time it's the same with any of the sort of counseling as well it's set times isn't it you can have so much and and that idea is that you know just give you enough to cope and and for me many of that, that is around like with the counseling is around CBT so cognitive behavioural therapy. And and the challenge, I think, with that is cognitive can be men- very much about questioning somebody's thinking around mm-hmm. it. So that's suggesting that their thinking's wrong because they're stressed. And I kind of think, well, hang on a minute. Yeah. <laughs> How did they? It stress isn't just about that individual person. It's what's going on around them. If you mm-hmm. put somebody through a challenge like many of these parents were facing and expect them to do it whilst being financially curbed in the money that they had, whilst trying to keep going, trying to manage that, managing their other children, then trying to navigate a system that they don't understand 
are you surprised that they're stressed? Mm-hmm. So what's the answer then? What uh, would make it better? What would make it better for the parents? I think that, well, I mean, the utopia is we completely <laughs> reform the system. But I think that at the very least, it needs to be acknowledged at, at the beginning. We have to find a way to support parents who are in this position before things, you know, recognise where there might be challenges. So there might be challenges them in, in the parents who are navigating the health system, who are navigating the education system with their children. These are really difficult. If their child is, does not fit as such, it becomes a really difficult thing. So I think it's all in, it's all in the earlier support mm-hmm. and it's around having a service that's there just you know to help those parents and for that to be known because somebody could very well like be listening and think but we do run this service and I'm sitting here thinking I'm not, I don't know what it is yeah. but that's part of yeah. it, but I think that's it's all all of these things intersect so much as well don't they because what what we're saying is that it's a very individualized response and the responsibility yeah. is placed on the parents but actually what you're talking about there is if it's about trying to navigate that and trying to find the right mm. services and support, that still doesn't address the, the structural issues that actually no. create the, the the struggles and the challenges for it them. It doesn't. Because it's still about you and your role in navigating that and finding the right support instead of actually, well, why is the education yeah. system problematic? Why is that child experiencing difficulties in accessing educational support? Yeah, and it's it's because a lot of the when we talk about these services that the public services that are set up, they they there's an issue with things being very broad and very generic. And actually, what they then do is they don't they can't then function and deal with specialists or complexity within mm-hmm. that. So you've got a mainstream education system that has to deal with classes of you know thirty children all in there at the same time with one teacher. Mm-hmm. So actually, how can a teacher then? manage that and 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 be attentive to every single need in that classroom Mm -hmm. they they can't so it's already that generic system is already the problem so um I don't have the answers for that I mean I, I have political ideas about about that but it's 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 across the board and it does feel like you know the support has been eroded over the over the years and I'm hopeful that that will change with getting information out there. I think that what was concerning me with, I mean, these parent carers, it hadn't occurred to them to think about it in this way. And it hadn't occurred to me to think about it like that either when I started this process. It was only in doing it and having other people question me that I thought, yeah, actually, why is that Mm -hmm. the case? Why? And I just think in, in general, we're not asking that question enough and practitioners are busy and they're just trying to get on and they've got massive caseloads they're trying to sort of do the best that they can and I don't doubt that but people get missed all the time yeah yeah because you mentioned earlier about um sort of access to social services being reserved for people who would meet, yeah. you know f- make meet the threshold thresholds yeah. and that threshold um seems to get higher and higher doesn't it and you know as for social workers um, what kind of challenges does that create for them? I mean, because presumably they would be in a role where they could yeah. be very supportive and helpful for people who who don't meet the threshold but still have a lot of need. And they support. do, but it means that they don't go to those. So, mm-hmm. so what's happened? Um, and and I've seen this through my practice because when I was a trainee. I remember that I was doing. Um, so as a trainee, it meant that I had a to do my um, placements with a local authority that I was spons- sort of sponsored by. Um, and they, what they did was they, I was working in um, sensory support. And I remember at that point, so that was about 2004, I think it was, so quite a while ago now. But what they did was they um, would give out lots of equipment. There was no question, it was just did the person need it, they got the equipment. Mm-hmm. And then as I sort of went back and saw what was going on, that stopped and then it was suddenly actually we can't afford to give out you know just give this out you've then got to be worse you've got to have a worse or more problems 
and then you can have it. Mm-hmm. And that happen, has happened all the way along. So what I've seen happen with, with social work, certainly in, in statutory social work within the local authorities, is they're moving further and further away from the one-to-one work with people and they're moving further back into these overseeing roles that with the most complex cases coming to them. So then what it, you're left with is is elements of early help within the community so I've had personal experience with that now and I've found that very challenging because actually I'm sitting there with the person who has not got the training mm-hmm. that I would have expected them to have in dealing with children in, who have needs and they're very much set on just what they are doing so we, we there are concerns in the profession that actually and again it's a cost saving thing because actually the volunteers are cheaper and so are the people that aren't on professional courses so we can save costs so what's happening is needs seem to be we we're identifying needs more and they're becoming you know they're they're there but actually we're not supporting them and we're creating more barriers to stop that i'm just wondering does it remove the blame a little bit as well when things go wrong once you responsibilize somebody else it's yeah the blame sits with them when a service doesn't work doesn't it absolutely and then that's the easy way because then and then person's doing that and blames themselves as well because if they don't cope they blame themselves Mm -hmm. there was a lot of self-blame and it it means that you kind of then if you're as a state it's because for me that's not then the welfare state the welfare state shouldn't be doing that but but that is what's happening and it means that then they don't need to do anything because it's not their responsibility and that's not what this was supposed to be about i've talked for years about the welfare state and this is not what we should be doing do you think that's an intentional strategy then or is it a byproduct of a set of political ideas i think it well i don't have the answer <laughs> to that um because obviously I, I am a bit of a judge judy find and that would a fan and that would mean i'd have to know the operation of someone else's mind i think that people there will be people who think it is intentional and people who think it's a byproduct i just think that whatever it is it's not right what did the parents think in the study um they so they thought they just thought they if they didn't cope they were to blame mm-hmm. they just thought they were to blame it was their fault you know and and they were really shocked about even thinking about looking after themselves mm. so in effect it doesn't really matter whether it's intentional no. or not because the outcome's the, outcome's the same, the same. Them, yeah, yeah it doesn't make it, that's the thing that i kind of think well i might have some personal views on that but when i'm looking at my research i'm thinking it's it doesn't matter it's it is that is the outcome that is what's happening and people are not getting access in the sense of whether we can change it because yeah i guess um yeah. you know practitioners social workers are on the front line and they see the impact of these because actually someone who can't access those services when they don't meet the threshold at some point they may well meet that threshold yes as you said before they're not the worst the, yeah the preventative support yeah. they're not getting the support and things might might get worse for them and their situation and social workers as you say are dealing with the most complex cases and they're really you know so they're really seeing um, the impact of these policies and these this political decision making on the lives of the people that they're supporting yeah um so um kind of getting back to what i was saying about well it does matter if it's yeah. intentional or not because if if it's intentional maybe there's more i don't know maybe it doesn't matter actually now that I'm thinking <laughs> it, but i was thinking if it's intentional maybe there is more scope to challenge and change that because there's an argument yeah um for social workers to be more engaged as policy actors yeah because they can see that impact they see what happens when these policies are implemented and some people get access and some people yeah. don't um they see the impact when people blame themselves for not being good enough or not being able yeah. to cope so they they then could and should have that collective voice in feeding that back and saying you know what we're seeing on the ground is that this approach just doesn't work um yeah. you know it's not getting rid of need it's creating more need it's creating situations where I think People it's knowing feel like they've failed as, as parents yeah. or that they're failing as parents, which is awful. And it but it's knowing it's, where to feed that back to because that's mm-hmm. that's part of the issue as well, isn't it? Because I think that, you know, in in, in, in social work you, you have obviously a team leader and you have regular supervision with them to go through cases. But but actually what you're doing there is, you know, very much right, what's gotta be done, what's gotta be done and usually there's so many families you're working with it's done quite quickly. And a lot of it and I think we've talked about it in other podcasts there as well, it's about 
having that space mm-hmm. to step back and think actually is this working is this actually helping because I know from my my just my personal experience it was actually leaving practice when I started to look at it and think hang on a minute why did I do that you know I mean those thoughts were there while I was a practitioner but knowing what to do about them when actually I've just I've got another family to go to and I'm going to that one and then I'm driving off down here to see this child and I've got to do this thing and I've Mm -hmm. got to do that you know actually that space so when I've talked to social work students about it I was saying look at the very least you know keep keep aware about what um, campaigns are going on you know like being in things like change.org and stuff like that where people are personal raising personal experiences that they've had and that if enough people are sort of joining with that it will be then considered in parliament they will have to consider it after a certain point and I've just said to them if if you can't do anything just do that just do something like that but I think that I mean that's part of why we're doing these podcasts as well isn't Mm -hmm. it it's about saying look people are talking about these issues but but are they being talked about in practice are they being talked about where it matters really really matters where actually they they are doing something Mm -hmm. and can we get that awareness there to to ask you know social workers to really think about is that beneficial is that helping Mm -hmm. and if it's not we need to be challenging that yeah and well I think you're right it's about how how do they challenge that (laughs) and how do they know how to challenge it because you know you can feel quite helpless as an individual can't you yeah you know, there is, is power in joining together. So those spaces need to be there for, for that kind of collective action and that collective voice. Yeah, definitely. So, Leslie, in your paper, you mentioned the idea of a good neoliberal citizen. And um, I just wanted to ask you, what is a good neoliberal <laughs> citizen? Um, and... How is this idea in tension with sort of the values and remit of social services, do you think? Oh, yeah, okay. That is a good question. Good question, Sarah. Um, the the good the good neoliberal citizen is effectively somebody who um, takes responsibility for their own life, their own the decisions they make, accepts the consequences of those decisions, and does not go and to the state for help. So actually, does as much as they can to avoid asking the state for any help whatsoever even if it's something that they cannot get elsewhere or um, that they would be entitled to because it is there, you know, within legislation or policy, it's there that they're entitled to it. A good neoliberal citizen does not go to ask for these things. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of around the the responsabilisation of the individual and it's something that, that sort of very much peered within child protection like years ago where, you know, parents were becoming... It was much more if they sort of saw it happening through... Um, you know the the riots that were happening years ago in in sort of London and I think they were in Manchester as well they were around the country where it was very much about that's the parents so the parents are responsible for that it's nothing to do with the state because the state's the one that's putting those structures out there mm-hmm. so it's not the structures I'm I'm saying that slightly sarcastically mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't think that if that comes across on the in in podcasting that was my sarcastic voice you know so it's nothing to do with anything that we've done outside of that it's always to do with then the individual so it is really about that person taking responsibility and it means if they can't find work that's their responsibility if they're sick in in certain types of sickness certain types of illness Mm -hmm. it's their responsibility so really there's kind of like a whole arena of things that actually no you know you need to deal with this yourself first Mm -hmm. that's the first thing you need to do you need to take accept responsibility and do something about it and it should be this last resort so to go to the state you should do everything you can I found that interesting in the psychosocial interventions that you were talking about the parent that they could access that Mm -hmm. the only ones that were available were individualized yes and they and they they were it was about like individualized things because it's it is there it's about like saying okay you you you're not man, you're not managing so it's you you didn't manage with your role that you've got that you're responsible for so therefore okay you can come and get this but then you must go back to doing it and it's all about that getting them back on their feet so they can do it because if they don't because obviously the state doesn't want them to um then not be able to manage because then the state will need to intervene 
So actually, if if they just do enough to keep them there and to and to hide it by so they don't ask questions about it, they don't challenge it, then that's what the, this this sort of neoliberal state wants. It doesn't want to be asked. It wants people to just keep it sort themselves out themselves. So I think that I think with social workers. I think that's a problem because I think it's really hard to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it I, it's, it's, it's almost invisible. I mean, the, the work that I'd looked at around the psychosocial stuff was, I think, the Sugarman. And that was like a really, you know, that was quite... We've kind of been led to believe, like, as you were saying before as well, Sarah, like this idea of, like, the massage and, and you know, self-help and all of this kind of stuff is really good for us, really mm-hmm. good for us, and we should do it because, you know, we care about ourselves, don't we? And it's mm-hmm. kind of presented in that way that, of course, you've got to care about yourself. But actually, when you look at it, it's like, is it about that or is it about stopping you from then going and asking for the help that you're actually entitled to? Yeah. And and actually, when you start looking at it like that, you can start to think, hang on a minute, is this service actually for the benefit of these people? Or is it for the benefit of the state to stop people from accessing things and mm-hmm. to stop money being spent? I mean, I, I do agree with it. You know, you don't want to waste money. You want to use money carefully and with consideration. But it does feel like, well, what's more important than, than you know, the well-being of these yeah. people? You know, it's very short term. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, and I, but I think that we can. I think social stu- social workers will struggle to see that because they'll be doing their job, mm-hmm. and they will be immersed in that. And mm-hmm. that's certainly a, a thing with social work practice and social work research because that's something that I I teach. You know, they aren't easy bedfellows. They don't sit nice and comfortably with each other because when you've got a practitioner, they are there and they are doing things. Yeah. And that's what they are. That's that's where they are doing it. And then you've got the research that goes on that seems to go on somewhere else where people have a bit more time to step back, time to think about it. And it's really difficult for that busy practitioner to connect up with that, yeah. to, to pull that out and then actually start thinking about, hang on a minute, is, are we actually doing the right thing here? Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> go on, that's right. No, it's just there's so much that's really interesting in that that I want to unpick. And <laughs> <laughs> just going back to that idea of, of the good neoliberal yeah. citizen and this idea of, of individual responsibility and autonomy. Yep. And we do see that within social policy and, and mm-hmm. you know, with the personalisation agenda being a really good example of that, where um, service users are positioned as being very authentic yeah. and able to make choices and decisions. And then, you know, that then does have a knock-on impact on social workers practice because if they're not having to make the decisions because the person's managing their own budget and doing all of this stuff themselves they're free to have bigger caseloads etc etc and that's not the reality so we see this kind of yeah it's not really a question it's just like a follow-on from what you were saying no i think it's so many repercussions in practice of of that kind of ideology and the way that it positions people yeah and that doesn't reflect the reality that actually people do need often more time and support to make decisions to you know yeah. in your paper to, to understand sort of what's available for them to access and to kind of navigate their way yeah because i think the systems. way this was sort of presented you know the idea of neoliberalism was presented about uh, you know the choice and control idea isn't it giving mm-hmm. people choice but actually when you start to look at those choices it's it's like this sort of it's 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 the kind of bourgeois illusion of it and in actual fact is there any choice there mm-hmm. can people actually make a genuinely informed decision about things because in order to do that they need to understand what's actually happening and that's the bit that's hidden mm-hmm. that they don't, the, the, the choices that are being made that it appears that there's choice but actually there was no choice given earlier on in this process kind of thing or in people's lives mm-hmm. to help them to look at actually well hang on a minute no I don't want to go down that route at all Yeah. so because the prevention because the early stuff's not there we're already they're already in it they've already been taken down a road mm. and then they're presented with what appears to be choice and they so they make it but actually that's that's quite kind of tokenistic choice isn't it it's not genuine choice of of somebody to have that control over their life i think that's where for me in like the research i've done around my phd as well you can have something that appears to be a good policy 
can actually, when it's put into practice, can actually be quite discriminatory. Mm-hmm. And it takes quite a lot to realise that. It, yeah. You know, a lot of thinking about it and really delving around underneath to see what's really going on, you yeah. know? Yeah, that, that takes <laughs> me back to that conversation yeah. we had before about policy actors and yeah. and who has that role, because the whole policy pl- process is very closed off, isn't it, yeah. really? And, you know, who's, whose voices are included and who's influential in making choices about what these policies look like. I think yeah. There's probably a whole there's podcast a whole podcast on, on that, that which maybe we and how and how politicians get their get to be in charge of certain areas feels it's rather arbitrary as to yeah. you know who's in charge of ch- you know children and young people or who's in charge of this and who's in charge of that and yeah. what's their background and where's that knowledge come from and then you're like well hang on a minute you yeah. know I think ultimately if you know I do quite often just come back to critical thinking and think actually if we go into things and we can try and be really good critical thinkers then we can start to question because it is just about questioning it and thinking is that is it you know is that how how it appears to be it appears to be good is it (laughs) (laughs) and going back and thinking let's not just you know let's not just accept it because it appears to be okay let's let's actually your paper in this research really highlights that so well doesn't it because on the surface yeah um this is something really positive you you've got people accessing that respite and and yeah gaining something that i'm sure is really useful in in lots of ways but actually when you unpick a bit further about how people feel about that why it's set up in in the way that it is yeah it's not quite as rosy as it might look at at first no i suppose and you have to be careful i think about how you then feed this back because i think Mm. you know um Donna, similar to, to what you've done as well, you can't just go. I can't. I couldn't comfortably go back to the organisation and effectively say to them, you know, are you at? You're not really helping. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's not going to be good. That's not helpful, and it isn't helpful. And I would never do that. I went back to them and fed back the service evaluation of of what people said about it. Mm-hmm. But I think then it's a separate thing to me to then talk to the practitioners effectively and say. Have you thought about it in a different way, though? Mm-hmm. And I think it's about having an environment in which you can pose these questions, because it's not about it. I don't think it's helpful to have this fed back to an organisation who's just trying to do the best that they can and provide mm-hmm. a service, mm-hmm. you know, because then that is disconnected, isn't it? And I yeah. think that's about us thinking about where where we place things and where we talk about them. And now, obviously, with this, I can then say these things and say mm. have a th- you know why not have a think about it yeah well and how could this look different yeah you know what needs to change it needs that, that relationship though doesn't it between yeah. the practitioners and the research to enable that to happen i think yeah. when yeah. you've got the practitioners who've got access to the yeah the people and you know that can see what's going on on the ground and the researchers have got the the ability to kind of step back a little bit yeah, yeah. and it needs the two to come together to be able yeah. to start to answer some of those questions yeah absolutely it's so important that relationship and yeah that's why sort of I came up with this particular model that I use with practitioners. Can I do a little plug for my model? Yes, I think you do. I feel like it's a little plug for a model, which (laughs) I call (laughs) facilitated practice-based research. So it's about recognising the fact that actually that we need to kind of be engaging with practitioners to hear what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're the ones that see things happen. So they're seeing the policy in practice. They're implementing aspects of policy into practice so we need to get that from them and then we then use that kind of the fact that we're slightly stepped back from it to pose some questions Mm -hmm. to that that then can help them create you know research around it and and look to see hang on a minute is that working how does that work in practice what does it actually look like and I think it is about us having those relationships and continuing to do that and it, and it means the practitioners being open to us being a part of that but it's about acknowledging that you know we're, we're, we have differences but actually if we work out how to put them together we can actually create something really important yeah. you know and then we've got research that raises these questions and then if we feed these back into the system you know wherever that might be um but like an organization i'm working with because they have um so walls and children community they they work they're funded by save the children which is a large organization that then can say something mm-hmm. so the research that's going on in a really small community environment with 
which we're working on, you know, the university I'm working on different projects with them, we can then feed that back in and they can feed it through into a larger organisation that then can feed it back. So we kind of, you know, maybe some of the answer is about how we're doing research. Maybe that's what we're coming back to. It's like moving it together with the practice rather than it just being separate. And I think that's, for me, that's what I've come to find really important about what I do is actually making those connections and working with these the smaller organisations and actually then doing something with yeah. with that research. And that's a very anti-oppressive approach in many ways, isn't it? Because it's thinking about who... You know, research is, is production of knowledge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it's about, you know, who what questions are we asking yeah. in research and who's deciding what those questions are. So actually going back to the people on the ground, yeah. practitioners, service users, you know, people with lived experience as well. Yeah. Um, and and kind of taking our starting point from what they're seeing and experiencing, I think, is really, really important. Yeah, because so. I don't think we see en- enough. I mean, you know, about the those experts, the people who have actually experienced yeah. it, and and being with the work I've done with Steve McDonald, what we've been trying to do is is create a a, a methodological approach to say actually, okay, if you are going to do this research in a really small environment, and, and go and get those voices and listen to those stories first then actually in order to then um, feed that back into the larger sort of system, what we then do is then take that and prepare quantitative research. So we then go and do surveys and test it and say, is this experience more broadly? Because then that's the data that you can then feed back into the, the larger system which needs the figures mm. needs it's the interesting why the numbers are privileged though isn't it I know the, the numbers are yeah, yeah the numbers over the voices that's, that's a bit a, of a capitalist thing in itself that isn't is, it yes yeah the fact that we yeah. have to quantify we do which yeah there's, there's again that's a whole other podcast it's a whole other podcast isn't it right <laughs> but it's this constant um, thing of you kind of like you're trying to do the best aren't you in a situation because that's where we are yeah. Uh, but then what you're doing, you know, you're kind of like, well, I'm not condoning that, but I'm working with it and I'm saying, okay, well, let's actually get the voices. Let's not ignore them. Let's get mm. them and then let's test yeah. them out and then let's feed back yeah. into then hopefully this ideal situation in which all the voices are listened to and heard. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's kind of a bit of an underpinning thing for this whole discussion, isn't it? Yeah. That we are embedded in these systems we and are. structures and we might want to change them, but we are also constrained by them yeah. anyway. So. Yeah, so, yeah, little steps, I suppose. Um, I've got one last question. I don't know if you've got any final questions, Donna, but I I wanted to just ask you um, kind of what you think the key messages are for social workers from your paper and, I guess, from this conversation that the three of us have had today as well. I think that, that for me, um, so it's, it's, it's not so much about... A, my research tends to be around... I, I look at different complex issues... But actually what I'm really focusing on is the practice and what people are doing. So I suppose um, for me it's about saying to social workers even something that appears to be incredibly helpful and useful is not necessarily. Mm-hmm. And it, so basically that they do need to be looking and challenging about everything and yeah. looking critically at everything because just because something appears to be one thing doesn't mean it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not saying that social workers have to do, you know, constantly challenge constant in their, you know, working life. Just do a little digging. But just do a bit of digging at times. I think that's because I think it's important because I think that because when we do think about knowledge, you know, I'm I'm teaching at the moment and and there isn't just one type of, you know, there isn't one type of knowledge. There isn't one answer to everything. It's constantly evolving and it's constantly changing. And I think it's really important that everybody, including those people who are actually doing this job and they're out there and they're working and they're seeing the impact of things, that they do question it and they question their practice because we we do need to constantly evaluate it to make sure it's the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's especially important in social work practice because the, the examples and the evidence around is what you're seeing every day. So actually looking at, you know, am I actually helping here? Am I, you know, because if you ask social workers and when they come into interviews, they're saying, you know, what is it? Why do you want to become a social worker? And that idea of, well, help and support is always there. So I think going back to the kind of their values, really, and saying, is it? 
uh, am I helping? You know, yeah. and I think we can all do that. I, I'll say that across the board. Yeah, I say I that, that. Yeah, it can be quite uncomfortable at times. It is. You know, yeah, because you know there are certain restrictions yep. by virtue of the role. There's yeah, that's going to be a useful process though. Yeah, as well. So then I suppose it's then finding a, a way to then be true to that. Mm as you can and if a system is a problem thinking about what can I do as a as a as a citizen you know as a member of this society about that because you're not just a social worker I do have one last question okay (laughs) no I think (laughs) I think we've thought a lot about advocacy and uh, ideology and quite political framing and I just want to go right back to your your service users and the, the parents yeah if you could put one practical intervention in place that would actually make a difference for them what would that one thing be do you know what i think it's what's interesting from that is because i'm i'm listening to lots of different research so so as a, as a social work researcher i you know we always use terms like eclectic because it, it, there isn't just one answer there isn't just one theory there's no one paradigm for everything so when i've been listening to what other people are saying and thinking about what I did in in my research I do think that there is there is something missing that actually one of the practical barriers if I accept that this is how things are at the moment I would want to help them out now mm-hmm. and I do think that this service did help them without a doubt they they felt supported and they felt helped and they felt relaxed that to me then should be just always available to them rather than it being something that was finite you know that they only get so much access to it but what i what i've really realized is it and it'd be great if somebody is listening to this and could tell us that there is something out there but that that advocacy that advocacy that can help them because we all encounter situations it doesn't matter who we are and whether we are deemed to be you know in certain categories vulnerable or not we encounter situations that we're not prepared for and we don't know what what to do and I do think that um, you know we need actually a service that's there and not just be told go and join a parenting group on social media or you know ask somebody else kind of thing but actually be genuine in in this is right there are people here who know the system and who have that knowledge and have that information I mean there are different advocates out there because I mean I've got a support um, from Sendias who are advocates for parents who have disabled children but it doesn't mean they they know certain systems it doesn't mean they know all of it Mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of my utopia is to have that you know basically that access to the knowledge yeah because that's what stops people and it's and it's unfairly distributed and it's unfair that you know some people kind of know how to get around that and know how to navigate it and other people don't so there's no fair playing field there yeah and it means that the people actually that probably need it the most don't know that it's there and that's the bit that i would want changing i think just to make a fairer access I was just wanting to come back to that because I think changing political and social systems, which we'd all like to do, yeah, takes yeah. a long time. It and does. Sometimes it's just about going back to that practical: what do people need yeah. that you might be able to do something with a little bit more quickly? Yeah, and I mean they needed the the, the massages that they had and the counselling because it was about the fact that well they're in that position, so the strategies. So that's what I fed back to the service that those were helpful. The people found they were the experts. You know, and it's hard when you're using terms like that and then we're saying, actually, but, you know, you don't know what's happened here. But, you know, um, they found those helpful. So, you know, there was no doubt at all that that service was helpful for them and it was supportive, even if they didn't access it. Yeah. Knowing it was there and knowing that they could go to it. They felt supported. They felt supported. So actually that service did achieve, and that was the feedback on the service evaluation, that it did achieve what it set out to do. And it was about they need to do something to advertise it and get people to understand. It was free. They didn't have to pay. Mm-hmm. That was quite a surprise to people because it was funded. Yeah. It was free access. But obviously, the more people accessed it, the, the more restrictions, the more restrictions have yeah. to come on. But yeah. yeah. So um, 
yeah but i would i just feel like um advocacy is actually a really important thing that you know um you you need and sometimes it's not always independent and that can be a problem if they're in this inner system that they're supposed to be advocating for but i just think it's about the knowledge it's access to the knowledge well we've been talking a lot today and it's been really interesting so thank you so much Leslie for chatting to us about your work and thank you Donna as well for being a guest host today thank you for having me today it's been really interesting to join the discussion hopefully you might have me back again (laughs) I'm sure we will and thank you you have been listening to the portal podcast linking research and practice for social work with me Dr Sarah Lombay and Dr Leslie Deacon and this was funded by the University of Sunderland, edited by Paper Ghosts, and our theme music is called Together We're Stronger by All Music 7. And don't forget that you can find a full transcript of today's podcast and links and extra information in our show notes. So anything you want to follow up from what you've heard today, um, check out there and you should find some useful extra resources. See you all next time. Bye. Bye.